This evening, we'll be advancing a bit further into the Gospel of Mark. And again, I would uh, encourage everyone to read the Gospel of Mark in a different way from what we're doing in Lecture Divina, and that is uh, get together with a few friends, and, or maybe just yourself, and read it all aloud once in one shot from start to finish. It's about an hour, 22 minutes, give or take a minute. It uh, is a great experience to do that, just to get a sense as we hear, especially read it aloud, what the words that we hear touch our hearts. So I encourage people to do that whenever they have an opportunity. But this is a different approach. This is going slowly, bit by bit, meditating in each portion. This is the approach of Lectio Divina. And as we look at the portions of Mark that we've uh, read already, as we're now going to be reading chapter three, verses one to 19, at the very beginning of the Gospel of Mark, we have the coming of our Lord, the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And then he begins to uh, be tested and he calls his disciples. The word begins to spread. There's excitement about his coming. And it is so much, there's so much excitement and welcome for him that he even has trouble going around in public because so many people want to see him. Then we go through a portion, which we're just gonna end this evening, chapter two and the first six verses of chapter three, where there's opposition growing to the Lord. There are five different encounters with people who do not welcome him, who do not say when he says, come follow me, who do not do so, but rather are looking suspiciously at him. And ultimately, of course, in due time, they will crucify him. And so we see that pattern as he goes about doing good and presenting the exciting reality of the good news that is uh, like new wine for new wineskins, that there are people whose wineskins are very hard and shriveled and will not, cannot accept the exciting new gift which he brings. The last part of that is this evening in the first portion of chapter three. But then he moves on. The Pharisees go off to meet the Herodians to plot the death of Jesus, and they will eventually bring that about. But Jesus goes off to be with the people who come to him, who surround him. And then out of amongst his disciples, he chooses the 12. And he gives in that a message for us as we seek to be his disciples and we seek in our own way to follow him, to let the new wine of the gospel expand us and make us people ready to be his disciples. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Let's let go of all those cares and worries that so preoccupy us, so many things, and none of them of value. Let us be attentive to the word of God that comes to us. Speak, Lord. Your servant is listening. Let us ask God's forgiveness, especially in this Advent time, for all those things within our hearts, pride, anger, envy, greed, laziness, lust, gluttony, all those things that are boulders and barriers to prevent him from coming into our hearts. 
Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Come, Lord Jesus. Speak, Lord. Your servant is listening. Come, Lord Jesus. Again, he entered into the synagogue and a man was there who had a withered hand and they watched him to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man who had the withered hand, come here. And he said to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart and said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him, how to destroy him. Jesus withdrew with the disciples to the sea and a great multitude from Galilee followed, also from Judea and Jerusalem and Edomia and from beyond the Jordan and from about Tyre and Sidon, a great multitude hearing all that he did, came to him. And he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they should crush him. For he had healed many, so that all who had diseases pressed upon him to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirits beheld him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. And he went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired. And they came to him. And he appointed 12 to be with him and to be sent out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. Simon, whom he surnamed Peter, James, the son of Zebedee and John, the brother of James, whom he surnamed Boanerges, which is Sons of Thunder, Andrew and Philip and Bartholomew and Matthew and Thomas and James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus and Simon the Cananean and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Again he entered the synagogue, and a man was there who had a withered hand. And they watched him to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath, so that they might accuse him. Jesus again enters into the synagogue as he had been before, before he, when he proclaims and proclaims God's new kingdom here in our midst. And again, he entered the synagogue and there was a man who had a withered hand, a man in need of healing. And this leads us to expect what we know of the Lord, 
that he will heal this person. Where there is injury, he brings healing. He always, it radiates out from him. And there are people all around watching him. But they're watching him, not with joyful expectation of what he will do, eager to see the good that will come from him. No, they watched him to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. They're there watching to trip him up. Our Lord finds this always as he proceeds along on his way to Calvary. The people there, doesn't say who they are, they're watching him. They might feel a little paranoid, they're watching, but there they are. And they are indeed not filled with a wholesome expectation or a joy, but narrow, crabbed, watching for a fall. So that they might accuse him. Let's look at our own lives, as we may well condemn the Pharisees, who turn out to be the ones who are watching, as we see at the end. He doesn't even say at the beginning it's the Pharisees. Later on, he says they left to plot with the Herodians. But no, they're watching. How often do we watch, look at others so that we might accuse them? A censorious spirit, always alert, not for the coming of the Lord, not for the opportunity to repent, watching other people to see them fall. I think sometimes we need to have blinders like those horses so we can just keep moving ahead on our way to the heavenly Jerusalem. Forget about the sins and faults of others, but also forget about testing other people. We should have enough in our own life to repent about and to be attentive to our own sins without scanning the horizon. And he entered the synagogue and a man was there who had a withered hand. And they watched him to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. It was allowed to heal someone, help someone who was in danger of death on the Sabbath. That was fine. And this man had a withered hand, which although it was obviously painful and difficult for him, it wasn't exactly a matter of being in danger of death. And so they might say technically, well, Jesus, go ahead and heal him when the Sabbath's over. You've still got a few hours to go and that'll be fine, but not now. They weren't being totally unreasonable, but they were just missing the point. They were watching him so closely. They were not filled with the joyful expectation of new life, new wine. Instead, they were seeing if he would heal him on the Sabbath. And so often we see 
This is the point. The Sabbath, which is to bring freedom, which is to bring that spirit of joy, becomes in the minds of these people an occasion to trap someone else. How narrow we can make the good things of faith, even the good things. And we have to be careful about that. Our Holy Father's been talking a lot about that lately. A lot about that. We need to be spacious, open, loving, merciful in our faith. And be careful lest we become crabbed and narrow. Because even if still righteous, we've simply missed the point. And our Lord Jesus teaches us that in today's gospel. So let's ask the Lord's forgiveness for the times we have been so observant of the people around us, watching too carefully. Lord, grant us a blindness for the sins of others and a consciousness of our own that we may know your love and mercy and may show that to those around us. And he said to the man who had the withered hand, come here. And he said to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm? to save life or to kill. But they were silent. He's obviously being extreme here. Obviously, it isn't good to do harm on the Sabbath or to kill. He's using extreme language here to break through because their problem is not just that they're being nitpicky about the Sabbath laws. It's the deeper hardness of their hearts. It's the fact that they're watching him, and as we see, they're planning to destroy him. What is good to do on the Sabbath? To maybe heal someone a little too early, when you maybe should have healed them when the Sabbath's over? That's good, although maybe a little poorly timed, but. Who cares? But what they're doing, as they're watching him, we see, is they're planning to kill him, to destroy him. It comes out later. How dark the heart can be when we have that censorious spirit. It's not just the issue of the Sabbath. It's that they are not receiving the joyful presence of the Lord. They are the withered, dry, shrunken wineskins that the Lord spoke about before. Before it was an image, here it is people surrounding him. And that's a message for us too. And he said to the man who had the withered hand, come here. He actually says, rise up, get up. Just what he says to people when he heals them. And he said to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? 
but they were silent. Not the silence of prayer or the silence of adoration, but silence because they knew he knew their hearts in the harshness and the violence that was within them. As they were trying to trap him on a minor point of timing, of healing, he could see within them. And so they could not answer. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart. And he said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out and his hand was restored. Think of when we hear of the Lord being angry, the zeal of God, the wrath of God. He looked at them with anger, deeply grieved at their hardness of heart. As our Lord purifies the temple, we see him there with a righteous anger. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart. He doesn't look at this way at sinners, the various sins of the flesh or other sins. What really angers the Lord, grieves him deeply, is that scheming spirit, cold and righteous, which he senses all around him. There's ice there and coldness. Just as Dante so wisely puts at the pit of hell, not fire, but ice. He grieves at that hardness of heart. That's more serious than a lot of other sins. How many times do we hear the Lord said to be angry and deeply grieved? This is what angers him and deeply grieves him. Silence, watchfulness of self-righteousness. And so we need to be attentive to that. We need to ask God's forgiveness for our many sins day by day. But woe betide us if we are like the Pharisees in this experience in today's gospel. That's what angers the Lord and grieves him deeply. Let's ask the Lord's forgiveness for any times we have been that way. So hard, so unforgiving, so watchful of other people, not watchful of how to help them, but watching them to make a mistake so that we might delight in that and trap them. Let's ask the Lord's forgiveness for any time we have been that way. And in this time of Advent, especially as we do our examinations of conscience, let's hurry off to confession and confess it. If there are any occasions we've been like the Pharisees in today's gospel, because this kind of sin, this kind of sin angers the Lord and grieves him deeply. May the Lord forgive us for that.
And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart. He said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out and his hand was restored. Always new life flows out of Jesus. Sometimes it takes the form of physical healing, but it's a sign. His hand, he could not use it, now he can. This is a, a bonus miracle on the Sabbath day itself. He's giving new life to this man. What a joy, how gratuitous, how fresh. It's a sign of something greater. It's a sign that the Messiah has come. It's a sign that the kingdom of God is breaking into this world, bringing life and joy. It's a sign that the new wine is bubbling and fermenting and bursting and stretching out. And we need to have our whole self ready to receive that. It's not just about a little matter of Sabbath law. Our whole self has to be ready to receive the Lord. And the sign of that is this miracle. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. What a joyful experience of new life this man receives as his hand is made whole. Itself beautiful in his life, but a sign of God's gracious presence. And yet with that hardness of heart, it didn't penetrate. The Pharisees at the beginning, they're watching. Then they're silent. Then they leave. They don't say a thing. They leave. They're out of here, gone. And planning with the Herodians, who were the political people, the Pharisees were the religious people, the Herodians are the political people, who they didn't normally work together with. But such bitterness can make strange allies. And it is indeed that combination of the religious and the political that ends up the crucifixion of our Lord. And it's already begun. We're only in chapter three of the gospel. So soon, how early in our lives we can ourselves turn against our Lord. It's a warning for us. And so away they go. But Jesus withdraws with his disciples to the sea and a great multitude from Galilee followed him, also from Judea and Jerusalem and Emea, from beyond the Jordan, from about Tyre and Sidon. A great multitude, hearing all that he did, came to him. And so some people are slinking out to plan the death of Jesus. But the people from all over, far more than before this set of attacks on Jesus we've just experienced in chapter 2 and this part of chapter 3. There were some people from the neighborhood coming to Jesus, thronging about the door, but now it's from the south, the north, even the pagans, they're all flocking to come to the Lord. He's gone far beyond even the range of John the Baptist. People came from Jerusalem and a few places for him, but here, once they see the presence of God, the life-giving presence, people flock to that 
Holiness attracts. We're seeing that a lot. Holiness attracts. God's presence attracts anyone, everyone from all over the map. And he's reaching out. The Pharisees sneaking off silently. Jesus reaching out to all kinds of people. I always love that symbolism of St. Peter's in Rome, with the great arms reaching out, all kinds of people. A lot to be said for a big church. Not a tight little sect of the saved, but a big barn of a church. Somebody once called St. Peter's the big marble barn. There it is, huge, with lots of room. And the arms of Bernini's colonnade just reaching out. And that's what we're called to be. We're called to move outward, to evangelize. And I think Pope Francis is in a very special way challenging, challenging, challenging us again and again to do that. Challenging us to look deep within us for the hardness of heart, careerism and all those things, worldliness he's always talking about, worldliness, those narrow things. Watch within us and repent of those and experience the mercy in which God chooses us. But having experienced that internally, reaching out like Jesus, our Lord and Master. So the crowds are coming to him. Let's ask the Lord to help each one of us surely enough to repent in our hearts, to ask God's mercy. But more than that, having done that, let's ask the Lord to help us to evangelize, to bring the good news, to reach out, to let the fire of the gospel spread, not to hold it in, but to reach out to follow in the footsteps of our Lord in this passage of Mark's gospel. New wine for new wineskins. And he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they should crush him. For he had healed many, so that all who had diseases pressed upon him to touch him. He's being crushed by them. They want to touch him. There's something physical about this. They want to be healed of so many things. This isn't very elegant. It's basic, popular piety. They want to touch him, reach him. There's something physical in this which is very good, and we gotta remember it always. We don't just love the Lord from the neck up in an elegant kind of way. Our faith is very physical and dealing with issues which are deep within each one of us, the ways we need to be healed. Maybe perhaps as in the case of the beginning of the man with the withered hand, but, but more so whatever else needs to be healed within us. 
We're all people in need of healing. We all need to reach out and touch him. And he asks and invites that. Because he is our Lord who cares for us. Sometimes in our faith, I think we can become a little bit, um, oh, I don't know, a little elegant in our Christian faith. You know, too academic, too abstract. That's where we need to to get that experience of the sacramental reality, which is at the heart of the incarnation. The word did not become a message that was communicated amongst us. The word became flesh and dwelt amongst us and still is flesh amongst us. In the living word of God of the sacred scriptures that touches us, cuts like a two-edged sword. And in the sacraments, so physical, so real. And in the church itself, not elegant and elitist, but a throbbing crowd pressing and pushing. It's always great. I know whenever I go over to Rome, which these days I'm doing more often than not, I always like going to these papal audiences. You know, you always think if you got the Pope, it's kind of a high-ranking figure up there, everything would be very prim and proper. It's not that way at all. Anyone who's ever, you ever see it on TV. People, you know, singing and cheering and waving and shouting and reaching out and passing babies to them, all this kind of stuff. It's, it's just so plain and so homey and not casual, but physical. And that's what our faith is meant to be. Woe betide us if we get a little bit too much from the neck up. And that means also, of course, that we experience our own sinfulness and, and that of others who are pushing in upon us, each one of us. And we also press in too much on others. So we say, Lord, forgive us our sins and help us to serve you more. But may we always have the desire to touch him physically. Do you ever see sometimes people, when they pray with icons or statues, it's a custom, it's a cultural thing, not necessary to our faith, but it's, it's interesting. Sometimes people just touch, touch the statue. It's something physical. It's, so, it's what's so beautiful about a prayer like this. It's just so physical. That's why, you know, whenever a person dies, there's little that is as comforting as the praying of the rosary. Just physical. It's, we're not angels. We, we have that dimension to us of the incarnation. And so we need to be attentive to that. That's why popular piety is important. That's why also we need devotion to Our Lady. Because when the Word became flesh, it's her flesh. She's the one who, among other things, many things, Our Lady, but she's the one who connects us to the incarnation, to the, the physical coming of God amongst us. Therefore, whenever we 
water down or get rid of devotion to Our Lady, we're in deep trouble. It's the same thing too, of course, about the Holy Eucharist. Ceremonies such as exposition or benediction and things like that are very physical. We seek now as then to touch him. And in the Holy Eucharist, we actually can. The body of Christ, amen. It is the incarnate Lord with us still. And he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they should crush him. For he had healed many so that all who had diseases pressed upon him to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirits beheld him, they fell down before him and cried out, you are the son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. They've got a lot more faith than the Pharisees. The Pharisees aren't dropping down and saying, you are the son of God. But the unclean spirits are. They know the presence of God in their midst. Their antenna are quivering. And there's no mistaking it. This always happens whenever he encounters Satan and the forces of evil, the demonic powers, they know his presence and he knows them and he commands them. He strictly ordered them not to make him known. He's not going to go the short path where they proclaim to people he is the son of God. It's gonna take a slow maturing of faith amongst his disciples before they realize fully that he is the son of God. It's going to take that over time as they experience their sins and his mercy and forgiveness, as they go through Calvary to the resurrection. And this is the son of God. And so in Mark's gospel, we have repeatedly this theme sometimes called the messianic secret or the Markan secret, that Jesus is moving around, healing and doing things like that, but he's not blasting his identity out too loudly. The, the demons are quite willing to do that, but he says, no, keep quiet. He is letting his identity be known by the effects of his presence. The blind see, the lame are healed, the dead are raised up, new life is flowing out when God is amongst us and it experiences and it finds a reaction of hardness in some and an open and loving heart in others but it will take time. And so he strictly ordered them not to make him known. It's sort of like in the Lord of the Rings where you don't get the solution by using the ring. The whole point is you don't use it. 
the demons would like to use it quickly and get things over with. Even good people want to use the power to destroy evil or make the things happen. But Jesus says, no, keep quiet. It's gonna take time. There are no short paths, or as Dante makes it very clear at the beginning of the Divine Comedy, you don't get a, there's no quick path up the delightful mountain. You gotta go the long way through hell and purgatory till finally after purification, you get to paradise. And so the demons are always going for the quick trip up, the quick thing. And that is demonic. That's not the way to go. It's a long journey, whether to paradise or to get rid of the ring in the land of Mordor where the shadows lie. Quick solutions. are the demon's method. Because they tend to short-circuit freedom, it's more power rather than freedom, and that's not the Lord's way. And he went up the mountain and called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. And he appointed 12 to be with him, to be sent out to preach, and have authority to cast out demons. And he went up on the mountain. Whenever he goes up to the mountain, he goes up to pray. We can think of the mountain of Mount Sinai for the great revelations, but he goes up the mountain, goes away, out of the crowd. It's said elsewhere that he spent the whole night in prayer before he chose the 12. He went up the mountain and called to him those whom he desired. This is different from the way in which rabbis were chosen by their disciples. The same today, when students are doing a doctorate or something, the student chooses the teacher. The disciple chooses the rabbi whom, who will teach the disciple about the law of God. That's the normal way, but that's not what Jesus does. He says, come follow me. He doesn't say, come follow the law of God. He says, come follow me. It's not the message, it's the person of Jesus. And he went up to the mountain, he called to him those whom he desired. He personally chooses them. And they're not expecting it. He calls them and they came to him. And he appointed 12 to be with him and to be sent out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. He appointed 12. This is the 12 tribes of Israel of old, God's people in the wilderness, God's people on the journey God brings them together, the 12 tribes. But he's creating a new community of faith, a new people of God. And so he builds, as it says in the apocalypse, he builds Jerusalem upon the 12 apostles of the Lamb. 
He appointed 12 in this new community of faith to be with him, to be sent out to preach, and to have authority to cast out demons. One, two, three. First of all, to be with him. They can't be sent out unless they're somewhere to be sent out from. They need to be with him. Hear how elsewhere he says, come and see, which means come live with me. We can't, any of us, be apostolic, sent out unless we've been where we're being sent out from. We have to be with him. We need to know our Lord, know his message, certainly, but know our Lord. That's why every day we need to spend time in prayer to be with him. That's why Bishop Sheen always recommended that priests spend one hour every day in adoration before our Lord and the Blessed Sacrament. To be with him, reading God's word, being with the Lord, not doing anything, just being with him. To be comes first, to do comes later. Too often we're doing, doing, we're busy, busy, busy. That's why there's a great book called The Soul of the Apostolate that talks about the heresy of busyness, of all this busy, busy, busy. First, we gotta be with him. That's why there's a contemplative foundation to our whole faith. And if we don't have that, then it's just gonna be, what? we're just gonna be spinning wheels. And that's true of priests and apostles and bishops and cardinals and all that. But it's true of every single one of us. We are going to be sent out, each one of us in different ways, sent from Christ as we all are, some through ordination, but all through baptism and confirmation. Then first we gotta be with him. It's not an option. To be with him and to be sent out to preach and to have authority to cast out demons to preach and to act with power, healing power, life-giving power. In other words, to do exactly what Jesus is doing. Because we see earlier on, what does Jesus do? He preaches and casts out demons. That's what he does all day. He is acting to bring life where there is death, and he's proclaiming the word, new life. And so the apostles, the 12 are called to do that. And so are we, in different ways. In my own situation, I'm called to do that because I'm a successor of the apostles. And there's a certain special, particular mission there. And I'm sure glad everyone of the diocese is praying for me at every mass. Thank you. This is this particular mission but all of us are sent out from Jesus in different ways. The greatest sacrament is not ordination, it's baptism, on the Eucharist, of course. And so here we have them, by name. It's not apostle number one, apostle number two, apostle number three, as we have in our hilariously known sin number, I think not. So he has Simon, whom he surnamed Peter. Every single list of the 12 apostles starts with Peter. 
This isn't subtle. Peter, Peter, Peter. Simon, whom he named Peter, and of course in Matthew's gospel, we have a bit more of how he named him Peter. You are Peter, and on this rock, I will build my church. It's not a nickname reflecting Simon's rock-light character. He could have been called Jello more accurately than rock, rocky. Isn't that interesting that the Lord builds the church on rocky? It's not that. It's, he is to be the rock upon which the whole church is built. But he isn't that himself. He sins and sins and denies the Lord. And three times the Lord says, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? Feed my lambs, feed my sheep. The Lord is building a community of faith which is continuing down through time and built upon the rock of Peter who does not have any real qualifications. He doesn't have a master of divinity degree. He doesn't have anything like that. The exam before ordination, you might say, is do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? It's like what um, Pope Francis is saying, you know, uh, said to a bunch of nuncios, when you're picking bishops, said, if someone's holy, let him pray for us. If someone's learned, let him teach us. But pick someone with prudence, with, with pastoral care and love. You hope they're also holy too, you sort of hope, but it's part of the job description too, I would think, of all of us. But it's that. So Simon, whom he surnamed Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, whom he surnamed Boanerges, that is, sons of thunder. He seemed to like to give, not exactly nicknames, but names to his to sons of thunder. We can sort of get a sense of James and John, of how they were. They were boom. In any group, 12 people, can you imagine two sons of thunder in one little group? The meetings of the 12 apostles, boom, boom, you know. James, John, keep quiet. Sons of thunder. And Andrew and Philip. Philip was, that's Greek. It's quite a mix in here. We have Andrew and Philip. Andrew, of course, we had a couple of brothers. Andrew, Peter and Andrew and James and John. Peter, James and John seem to have been an inner group within the 12. This idea of having a little council of cardinals this goes way back to the Bible. It's sort of an inner group, and then there's an outer group. They, they show up at everything. They're there. He, he always gets James and John, Peter, James, and John to kind of be there. Andrew and Philip and Bartholomew and Matthew. Imagine Matthew, the tax collector, got in. You have a couple of rather well-to-do fishermen who left their father, but they could always go back to their father. Daddy would always have the boat, I'm sure. And you have Matthew, who really made a greater contribution because I don't think Herod would take him back when one of his runaway tax collectors has pretty well burned his bridges. So in some ways, Matthew had a, a bit better, more of a sacrifice. And Thomas, what a wonderful apostle. Thomas, sublime apostle, one might say. Profound, holy, great, marvelous. Oh yes, Thomas. 
who doubted him. Oh, no, that's in John's Gospel. We, I'm always embarrassed, this, you know. It's always a Sunday after Easter. I say, well, I'm named after Thomas More, Thomas Beckett, Thomas someone. <laughs> but anyway, Thomas and James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus and Simon the Cananean, which means kind of a zealous kind of a character. So we've got a fiery, lively, fervent believer. And we've got a collaborator with the enemy in Matthew. What a mix. Think of it. All drawn together because he desired them. And they came. There sure isn't anything common denominator in this group other than the fact that he desired them and they came. And he also desired the last one, Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. He was desired by Almighty God, invited to be an apostle, and he came. But then he joined with, in his heart, the Pharisees and Herodians who were out to destroy him. And I think our Lord is teaching us something there, which we need to think deeply about. They could have deleted Judas from the list, ashamed to talk about him. But every one of these lists, it ends off with, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Even an apostle needs God's mercy and needs to be open to the grace of God because even an apostle whom Jesus desired and called can betray him. And if an apostle can do that, so too can any one of us. So we need to wake up, never get complacent. We know the Lord desires us and calls us by name. And we're quite a mixed group. And we fail like all of them, but we can also betray him. He could have been the greatest of saints. Imagine, Judas Iscariot betrays the Lord, and then like Peter, repents. And we could have had all these churches saying Judas Iscariot Church, the great repenter. Wouldn't that have been beautiful? It could have been, because betraying the Lord's not any much worse than denying the Lord or doubting the Lord. He could have been the great Saint Judas, the man who repented, but he didn't. Well, we don't know exactly for sure, but he, he seems not to have. And so there is freedom here too. Although they always say, you know, twixt the stirrup and the ground, salvation may be found. But we don't know. But it's an interesting thought. That moment, the twixt the stirrup and the ground, salvation, a person falling off their horse, and in that last moment, we don't know. But let us pray. Again he entered the synagogue, and a man was there who had a withered hand. And they watched him to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath, so that they might accuse him.
And he said to the man who had the withered hand, come here. And he said to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him, how to destroy him. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea and a great multitude from Galilee followed, also from Judea and Jerusalem and Edomia and from beyond the Jordan and from about Tyre and Sidon, a great multitude, hearing all that he did, came to him. And he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they should crush him. For he had healed many so that all who had diseases pressed upon him to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirits beheld him, they fell down before him and cried out, you are the son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. And he went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired and they came to him. And he appointed 12 to be with him and to be sent out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. Simon, whom he surnamed Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, whom he surnamed Boanerges, that is, sons of thunder, Andrew and Philip and Bartholomew and Matthew and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, and Simon the Cananean, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil, amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death, amen. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now and ever shall be, world without end, amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen.